This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, the Institute of International and European Affairs. Join the discussion on IIEA.com and access our engaging videos, blogs and podcasts. So, good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us this lunchtime uh, for what is a very timely and important webinar discussion with our good friend Michel Barnier. Uh, the EU Chief Negotiator and Head of the European Commission's Task Force uh, for Relations with uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, my name is Michael Collins and I'm the Director General of the Institute of International and European Affairs, the IIEA here in Dublin. And we are absolutely delighted to be co-hosting this event with the European Commission representation here in Ireland. Brexit hasn't gone away, of course, and time is ticking away as we approach the December deadline. Uh, we've had a huge uh, amount of interest in today's event with well over 1,500 people signing up from Ireland, from the UK, from across Europe, and indeed from beyond that as well. And this is a testament to how important the ongoing negotiations are as we enter the final crucial phase that lies ahead. Yeah, before handing over to Michel Barnier, I will just run through some of the format details of this event. The full event today is on the record, the initial presentation and the questions and answer sessions that will follow. You can join the discussion using uh, Zoom's dedicated Q&A function, and I would encourage you to submit your questions as they occur to you throughout the presentation. Given the huge volume of questions that we expect, please keep your questions as brief as possible in the interest of getting through as many as we can. Please identify yourself when submitting your question, your name and your affiliation if that is applicable. Lastly, we also encourage you to join the discussion on social media, namely through Twitter. Uh, please join in using the handle at IIEA. So with that, Monsieur Barnier, uh, you're very, very welcome indeed. Thank you for being on this important, uh, uh, with us on this important day and on this IIEA platform. I'd now like to hand over to you. The floor is yours. Uh, many thanks, sir, Michael. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Uh, Diaive, um, thank you also for tuning in. I hope you are all safe and well despite the difficult, very difficult circumstances. Uh, let me start by thanking the Institute for International and European Affairs, Michael, uh, for inviting me and your team and for your kind words. Um, for many years already, your institute has played a key role in helping the public to better understand the implication of Brexit for Ireland and also your thoughtful analysis and recommendations uh, have also been useful for us in Brussels, here in Brussels and in national capitals. I would like also to thank the European Commission's representation in Ireland and its head, uh, Jerry Kiley, for helping to organize this event, as well as for all the support you have given to our task force over the last years. I'm very happy to for this new opportunity to interact with all of you today, even uh, if only virtually. Uh, the coronavirus pandemic continues to take lives around the world. 
and dealing with the sanitary crisis and its very serious economic and social consequences naturally remains the very first priority of governments and businesses. This is also, of course, one of the main priorities of the European Commission and its president, Ursula von der Leyen. And there are obviously other major projects and ambitions for the future of Europe, which President von der Leyen will present in a very important speech on the State of the Union on the 16th of September. But as uh, you all know, ladies and gentlemen, the pandemic does not stop the Brexit clock from ticking. We are now less than four, four months away from the 1st of January uh, 2021. This is a day chosen by the UK itself, itself for its economic and commercial Brexit after the political Brexit in January uh, this year. Because, as you know, the UK refused any extension of the transition period. So we have no more time to lose. We must have a final agreement by the end of October if we are to have a new partnership in place by the 1st January 2021. And as I have already explained, this is the only way to give enough time to the European Parliament and to the Council to have their say. This is a legal and democratic necessity. Everyone, everyone, everywhere must be realistic about this strict deadline. Ladies and gentlemen, the economic Brexit will in any case have negative consequences, many negative consequences. But if we all act responsibly, we can contain some of those consequences. Back in February, I mentioned three major tasks for this year. Number one, negotiating our future partnership. Number two, implementing the withdrawal agreement ratified last year. Number three, getting ready for changes at the end of the transition, the 1st of January. These three tasks are closely interlinked and completing each of them is urgent. I know this sense of urgency is strong in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Without a doubt, Ireland is a member state most affected by Brexit. And of course, for the island of Ireland, Brexit negotiations have not just been about trade and the economy, but more existentially about maintaining peace and stability. That is why, since the very beginning of the Brexit negotiations four years ago, I have been very attentive to the concerns voiced by the, all the different parties and communities in Ireland and Northern Ireland. I've worked closely, very closely, with Ireland's successive Tishing and Dakini, Leo Varadkar, and today Mirol Martin, and with uh, Minister Simon Coveney and other members of government. I've exchanged views with the Dole, 
and the Shen Ad, as well as all the Irish members of the European Parliament. Together, we carried forward the close relationship between Ireland and the rest of the EU based on solidarity, solidarity and respect. Ladies and gentlemen, in this context, I will miss Phil Hogan, on whom I could always count to relay any Irish concerns to me very directly over the last four years. I would like to take this opportunity to thank him warmly for all the work he has done for Europe as Commissioner for Agriculture and Rural Development, and more recently as Commissioner for Trade. In particular, in the context of the current negotiations with the UK, where he and his team of trade experts, including obviously Sabine Veillant, has been a great value. I used to meet him once a week as trade commissioner, once a week. And I look forward to working with the future commissioner for, of Irish nationality in the final stretch of the negotiation with the UK. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, before opening up the discussion between us, let me tell you where we stand on the three important tasks that I mentioned. First of all, let's turn to our current negotiations with the UK on the future partnership. We want a close partnership with the UK, provided the conditions are right. This is in everybody's interest, everybody, and in Ireland's interest in particular. So far, the UK, frankly speaking, has not engaged constructively in, on those conditions. And as I have said before, I am particularly worried and disappointed by the UK's lack of engagement on three points. First point, since the start of these negotiations, the UK has refused to engage on credible guarantees for open and fair competition. Open and fair. Yes, the EU has been clear about this from the very, very beginning, four years ago. Any trade and economy partnership between economies as close as interacted are ours. Look at the uh, my, one of my favorite slides uh, showing on the two axes, on one end the distance and on the other end uh, the volume of uh, exchanges with our main partners in the world. This, sh this shows clearly why we need this uh, economic and commercial fair play and credible mechanisms to avoid trade distortions and unfair competitive advantages. This is particularly important in the area of state aid, where the potential to distort competition using subsidies is clearly significant. A level playing field that ensures common high standards in areas such as labor rights and the environment and with the effective domestic enforcement and dispute settlement mechanism is the only way, the only way 
to start a new relationship between the EU and the UK on a firm and sustainable footing. And it is also what Prime Minister Johnson himself agreed on to explicitly in uh, this text, which is the political declaration ratified and agreed between us, the Prime Minister and the 27 leaders and the European Parliament uh, at the end of last year. Uh, second point, second point, uh, since the start of these negotiations, the UK has not shown any willingness to seek compromises on fisheries. Contrary to media reports, even this week, the UK government's position has not evolved in past months. New legal, new, no, legal, no new legal texts have been tabled by UK negotiators. Where the EU has shown openness to possible solutions, the UK has shunned our offers. Yet the UK government's positions would lock on islands, fishermen and women from waters they fished in long before Ireland or the UK joined the European Economic Community in 73. And of course, the fishermen and women of many other EU countries, that is just not acceptable. Ladies and gentlemen, we fully understand and respect that the UK will become an independent coastal state outside the common fisheries policy, outside of this European policy. But we will not accept that the work and the livelihoods of these men and women be used as a bargaining chip in these negotiations. Any solutions must ensure a balance between further developing the activities of British fishermen and women, safeguarding the activities and livelihood of European fishermen and women, and preserving natural resources. Without a long-term, without a long-term, fair and sustainable solution on fisheries, there will simply be no new economic partnership with the UK. Finally, third point, since the start of these negotiations, the UK has been extremely reluctant to include any meaningful horizontal dispute settlement mechanisms in our future agreement. Yet, this is the only way to ensure that what we eventually agree on is respected. On all these issues, we are simply asking to translate the political engagement taken in this text, in the political declaration, in a legal text, just a legal translation of the political commitments taken by the UK government and by the EU leaders. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing more, nothing less. Yet, on all these issues, the UK sides continue to disappoint. We know well the UK's argument. He want a clean break from the EU, he want full sovereignty and the freedom to set its own rules and spend its own money 
as it wants, with no constraints from Europe. And for all these reasons, the UK insists it cannot commit to a level playing field or to basic safeguards for our future relationship. Not even when it comes to fundamental rights. And yet the truth is that British negotiators are still seeking continuity in many areas. Not a clean break at all. For instance, on transport or on energy trading, on its role for conformity assessments for goods, and on many aspects of police and judicial cooperation. The UK government is still looking to keep the benefits of the EU and of the single market without the obligations. The UK often says it would be in the EU's interest to grant it a special statute in these strategic areas of cooperation, but frankly speaking, is it really the EU's long-term economic interest? For instance, British proposals on rules of origin would help the UK to develop its role as an assembly hub for the EU. They would allow the UK to source goods from around the world and export them with very little alteration to the EU as British goods, tariff and quota free. British proposals on road transport, and as an example, would allow British truckers to drive on e-roads without having the, to comply with the same working conditions as EU drivers. The UK's proposal on air transport, third example, would allow British airlines to operate inside the EU without having to respect the same labor and environmental standards. In the area of energy, the UK is asking to facilitate electricity trade without committing its producers to equivalent carbon pricing and state aid controls. In this area, as in others, without a common framework on state aid, the UK government would be free to hand out subsidies at will not just to support the green economy, but also polluting industries, not just to support industry of the future, but also traditional sectors such as steel and automotive before exporting these tariff and quota free to our market. Ladies and gentlemen, we have no wish to intervene, no wish to intervene in the UK's domestic affairs. But how can we conclude a long-term economic partnership agreement between sovereign partners, sovereign partners on both sides, without knowing which system of state aid or subsidies the UK will put in place? Without any assurances that the UK will not use its new regulatory autonomy to distort competition with us in the future. I note uh, with uh, interest, a recent speech by the Chief Executive of the Environment Agency for England, Sir James Bevan. He suggested that after Brexit, 
water quality standards for English rivers, lakes, and beaches uh, should be less rigorous than under the EU's Water Framework Directive. Of course, this raises major environmental and health concerns, but let us consider the economic too. If English farmers and industrials are no longer bound by high standards on water pollution, would they gain decisive and unfair cost advantages? We have no issue with regulatory divergence. It is normal that the UK wants to set its own standards and rules, normal. And it is the reason of the Brexit. But this serves to distort competition with us, then we have a problem. And there are other areas where the UK insists on being able to diverge substantially from its current standards as of the 1st of January next year. I'm thinking, for, for example, for instance, of the food sector. Here, not only is the UK looking to go back, to go back on protections for geographical indications secured the withdrawal agreement, he has also given us no reassurance on the future sanitary and phytosanitary regime that the UK will apply after the 1st of January next year. How can we make progress on sanitary and phytosanitary issues when we have no idea, no idea how the UK system will evolve? Ladies and gentlemen, these are not technocratic details. These are essentials. At stake are tens of thousands of European jobs and livelihoods, Irish jobs and livelihoods, our health, safety and well-being, our environment and climate, our fundamental rights. Of course, Ireland's particularly close relationship with the UK makes these questions even more important, especially for businesses exporting to Great Britain or competing with British companies. Ladies and gentlemen, thankfully, the withdrawal agreement means that we have a stable solution for goods trade between Ireland and Northern Ireland without a hard border on the island. This is essential to protect the whole island economy. This is precisely why our second important task before the end of this year, before the end of this year, is to ensure the full and effective implementation of the withdrawal agreement, in particular as regards citizens' rights and obviously the protocol on Ireland and Northern Ireland. And this remains an absolutely priority for the EU. It is the only way to protect the Good Friday, the Good and Belfast Friday Agreement and all its dimensions, and therefore to protect the gains of the peace process, which people like Devin Trimble, John Hume, Seamus Mallon, Martin McGuinness, and Jan Pesley worked so hard for, with the support, of course, of successive Irish and British governments and of the EU 
obviously. A precise implementation of the withdrawal agreement is also the only way to avoid the hard border on the island of Ireland and preserve the whole island economy. It is the only way to preserve the integrity of the single market and all its guarantees for consumer protection, public and animal health, by ensuring all the necessary checks and controls for goods entering Northern Ireland. And of course, it is a precondition for us, the EU and the UK, to be able to forge a meaningful partnership built on trust for the future. In uh, recent months, under the impetus of Michael Gove, the UK has started to make progress on the implementation of the protocol, and this is encouraging. But important questions remain open. The EU needs to be sure that the Union Customs Code will be applied in its entirety for goods arriving in Northern Ireland. Similarly, we need to know that goods leaving Northern Ireland respect all applicable EU export procedures and formalities. And finally, we need to be certain that all necessary controls are carried out on live animals and animal-derived products arriving in Northern Ireland from Great Britain and the rest of the world. To ensure that this agreement works on the ground, on the ground, as of the 1st of January next year, the UK still needs to complete many, many practical preparations, time-consuming and resource-intensive preparations. And of course, and of course, we will also continue to be extremely vigilant when it comes to ensuring the full respect of citizens' rights under this withdrawal agreement, both in the UK and in the 27 EU member states. Together with Vice President Marosevkovic, we continue to follow closely the UK's actions. Ladies and gentlemen, the rigorous implementation of the protocol, this protocol, will serve to protect peace and stability on the island of Ireland once again. And of course, an ambitious future partnership with the UK would help limit the negative impact of Brexit for Ireland, for the EU and for the UK. But even with these two pillars in place, and we are not yet there, there will be big changes on the 1st January 2021. On that date, the UK will leave the single market, will leave the customs union and all EU policies and all our international agreements. This is his choice, not our choice. Let me mention just a few examples of what this means concretely. On that date, the 1st of January, custom formalities will apply to all our imports and exports with the UK. On that date, the EU will no longer recognize UK types approvals for cars, for instance. On that date, financial institutions established in the UK will lose the benefit of the EU's financial passport. This is the UK consequences, the, the Brexit consequences. 
clearly. No trade agreement, no matter how ambitious, can change this. Businesses, public administrations, and citizens must urgently get ready for these changes. Here again, Ireland's unique geographical situation means that it will be particularly affected. Many Irish importers and exporters rely on the UK as a key route to and and from the rest of the EU, their land bridge uh, to and from the EU. We have been working with Ireland and relevant member states to ensure that this key connection to the single market remains effective. The, UK the UK's participation in the Common Transit Convention will certainly help in this regard. And on the EU side, our major entry and exit points are ready. But there are still concerns as to the readiness of some key UK ports. And Irish businesses, transport operators, ports and shipping companies will have to play their part in adapting to the new situation. Many already have shipping companies have increased capacity on direct services on the continent. Uh, businesses are reorganizing their distribution chains and diversifying uh, their market. More generally, more generally, Ireland has done a very good preparatory work. I particularly commend the government's Getting Ireland Brexit Ready campaign, and I know this work is continuing. I trust in your capacity to adapt to new times, very new times. Finally, to help stakeholders across the EU to prepare, the Commission adopted a readiness communication last July, 9th of July. We have also published more than 80, 80 sectorial notices with more detailed guidance, which are being translated in all EU languages. And we are working with all 27 national administrations to make sure that these changes, huge changes, are communicated clearly and understood by all. Ladies and gentlemen, dear Michael, uh, as we near the, fin finish, the, the finish line, I still have hope that despite current tensions, our common history with the UK, shared value and joint commitment towards multilateralism will prevail. Seamus uh, Ine, who passed away seven years ago this week, like to quote the words of uh, another great European, Václav Havel. And uh, he said, and he wrote, hope is not optimism, which expects things to turn out well, but something rooted in the conviction there is good worth working for. Ladies and gentlemen, I continue to think, despite the current difficulties, that 
Prime Minister Boris Johnson wants an agreement with the EU. He confirmed this recently to uh, the Yurti shock, Mirol Martin. This is also the wish of Presidents Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel, the wish of the European Parliament, the wish of the 27 heads of state and government. And we will do everything in our power to reach an agreement until the very, very end. But to be clear, we will not sacrifice, never sacrifice, the EU's long-term economic and political interests for the sole benefit of the UK. In past months, the EU has repeatedly shown flexibility and creativity to work with the UK's red lines on the role of the European Court of Justice, for instance, on preserving the UK's legislative autonomy on, on fisheries. It's time for the UK to reciprocate on those issues that are fundamental for the EU. I will be back in London next week for our eighth negotiating round as planned. And I sincerely hope to be able to tell you a new story after that round, a story of real tangible progress in all areas. Gurev Mila Makwiv, and thank you for your attention. I'm uh, now ready to answer some questions. Of course, uh, Michael, I ask for your understanding. Should I not enter into, into details, given that the negotiations are now ongoing? Thank you. Thank you, Michel. Uh, that, that's, of course, uh, fully understood. And thank you for your, uh, your words in Gaelic as well, in Irish. Very much uh, appreciated. And your poetic uh, references as well to the late, uh, great uh, Seamus Heaney. Uh, so, Alid, thank you indeed, uh, Michel, for getting us back up to speed uh, because we've had a summer break. And I think it's really, really important that we should now be reminded of the uh, huge amount of work that still needs to be undertaken by you and your team and by the UK as well. But as you say, uh, the clock is ticking uh, ever more loudly uh, as December approaches. Uh, so we really do appreciate the, uh, the, the update that you've given us and the insight into the current state of play. So I'm going to turn to a few questions in the time available to us, uh, Michelle, and um, there are several questions in about your mandate. And I'm just going to take one, if I may, from our good friend, the, the Belgian ambassador here, uh, Pierre-Emmanuel de Brau, here in Dublin. And he wants to know, he says, do you foresee a need for adapting uh, your mandate in order to find a landing zone with the UK? And I suppose the question is, do you have enough flexibility uh, in your mandate to, you allow, to allow you to um, complete the negotiations successfully? Michael, if the, the question of the Belgium ambassador in Dublin is to ask, ask me if I have enough uh, flexibility, my answer is yes. Uh, this flexibility is clearly linked to the trust we built between the EU 
27 leaders, the European Parliament and uh, my team, working under the authority of the Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission, with all the, the trust and the confidence uh, of uh, this, uh, this, this house, where I am in Brussels, the Commission, all the services, the, the, the directions, many, many experts, uh, uh, very important competences. Uh, my, my answer is yes. I think that uh, this mandate is clear. It has been given in the unity and uh, uh, total uh, clarity by the EU member states and supported by the European Parliament. And uh, uh, I, I, I think I can use this mandate uh, and this uh, uh, trust uh, towards our, my team and perhaps myself to, to, to find a compromise. But um, this mandate is also linked to the EU interests. And as I said in my um, initial remarks, uh, uh, we are ready and we want to deal, but not at any price. And we will never pay the price if uh, uh, it would be at the detriment of the single market, the integrity of the single market, and uh, the values of the EU and the interest in the long term of the, the EU. Never. Huh? So, um, Michel, just a question here from Dermot O'Leary, just to follow up on that. I mean, clearly, uh, from within the membership of the European Council, uh, there remains a unanimous support uh, for what you are doing and the approach that you're taking. Yes, but uh, once again, my answer is yes. Uh, there, there is a, a unanimous support of the 27 leaders, and I check this point uh, on a regular basis, meeting, for instance, the ambassador, the co-repair, uh, speaking with the, the leaders, personally speaking with uh, the, the Sherpa, uh, as the, the, the President of the Commission and the President of the European Council, Charles Michel, obviously are doing every day. Uh, I work in a, to, to, to deliver this mandate. So uh, there is no, no, no way to, to, to any kind of divergence or difference between what I am doing and, and the, the wish and the will of the, 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 the leaders. But let me just mention one point. This unity of the 27 member states uh, and the parliament is, is not given by chance. It's not falling from the sky. We are working uh, and we are building this unity every day, uh, meeting the leaders, meeting the national parliament, between the stakeholders, the business communities, the, the, the trade unions, obviously meeting the, the European parliament every week. Uh, uh, this unity is built every day, thanks or through uh, perhaps an unusual method uh, we have put in place with the support of the President of the Commission, which is a total transparency. Uh, perhaps it's one point that Rich has some difficulty to understand from the very beginning, uh, uh, but uh, this is the case. We say everything every day to everybody. And in that process, every member states, every member, when, uh, all the, 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 each of the 27 member states had the, the same influence and the same information at the same time. Okay. Okay, just uh, two questions. There are questions here from uh, two journalists uh, who I know write regularly on Brexit issues from The Guardian, Jennifer Rankin and Lisa O'Carroll and referencing your visit to London yesterday. 
uh, they ask, um, after your meeting with David Frost yesterday, has there been any change in the UK's position on state aid, level playing field or fisheries that could open the way uh, for a deal? Uh, and I know you don't want to get into the detail of the negotiations and that's understood. The second question that they have is, is it true uh, that, the United, that the EU is refusing to discuss the UK's proposal on fishing? And finally, uh, a simple question out of 10, what are the chances of no deal? Uh, once again, I don't want to uh, enter the details of my uh, discussion with uh, David Frost, who is a very strong and competent negotiator for the UK and uh, the team also, uh, as my team is very competent. Yeah. Well, um, but uh, uh, this, this, this week, yesterday, and I come back from London this morning, uh, we do not see any change in the position of the UK. This is why I express publicly uh, what I said. I am worried and I am disappointed. Because, uh, frankly speaking, we have, we have moved. I have shown in many issues uh, real openness in the last few months, uh, trying to reach uh, the British concern, the British priority, what we call the British trade line expressed by the Prime Minister on the role of the Court of Justice, the British sovereignty, what I call the uh, legislative autonomy of the UK, we want to respect, uh, obviously, and also uh, the, the, the fishing issue. And I'm, I have, I've shown clearly openness to find a compromise, respecting my mandate and using this flexibility and this trust. And, and None of this issue, the UK moved uh, in a kind of reciprocal movement. So uh, the reason why I'm concerned because if they don't move on this issue, which are the key issue of the EU, uh, level playing field, fishery and governance, uh, the, the UK will take, will take itself the risk uh, uh, of a no deal. Uh, I already mentioned the point of this uh, uh, press comments this week on fishery. Uh, this article uh, was and is ridiculous because it is clearly uh, contrary to the truth. So uh, I don't think that the, uh, the source, if I may say, of this journalist writing for the Times was the correct ones. No other comments on this point. And last point, uh, Michael, I don't think we can, you can use the word, the word chance for, for a no deal. Huh? Yeah. Ah, if I may, I will use the, the word of risk of a no deal, huh? not a chance, huh? as you mentioned. Uh, uh, we are working for a deal. Let me just mention one point. Uh, uh, make no mistake. Make no mistake, there will be a huge difference between a deal and a no deal on trade and economy between the UK and the UK and the EU. A huge difference. Sometimes I listen some in UK speaking of the chance of a no deal, the opportunity of a no deal. Uh, good luck, good luck. But uh, frankly speaking, 
there is no reason to underestimate or undermining the, 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 the consequences for many people, many sectors of a no deal. Huh? There will be a huge difference between a deal and a no deal. The reason why we are working for a deal and for the moment I still hope and I still think even it is very difficult uh, because of the British positions that uh, a deal is possible. Okay, okay just um, uh, you very uh, generously and warmly referred to the contribution that uh, Commissioner, uh, former Commissioner Phil Hogan uh, played and made uh, on, um, in, in relation to his portfolios as Commission, Commissioner. Uh, there's a question here and we'll just take um, this one um, from Justin McCarthy who's the editor of the Irish Farmers Journal and he wants to know does Monsieur Barnier believe uh, the resignation of EU Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan will have a negative detrimental impact on the outcome of Brexit from an Irish perspective? Uh, I don't want to come back on what I said very sincerely about uh, Phil Hogan. Uh, the, the, the friendship and the good, very good, very uh, good cooperation between us all along the last four years. It is the truth. So I don't want to comment what happens. Uh, I'm sure that the new Irish commissioner will be very proactive uh, uh, defending uh, uh, the, 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 his portfolio or our portfolio. Uh, uh, but uh, even if I am French, uh, I have always been very close from the uh, Irish interest and very attentive to the Irish uh, concerns. Um, I will never forget my meetings in Ireland and Northern Ireland with people on the grounds. Uh, and uh, the reason why I uh, pay such an attention to the Irish concern. So I will continue. And to be frank, uh, uh, in, in, in that process, uh, every member state has the same influence. Every member state. Okay. Um, two questions here, Michelle, in relation to services. Um, one from um, David Finnamore of Queen's University Belfast. He wants to know how can the all-island economy be protected in the absence of the free movement of services? And then um, there's a second question here from John McGrain, who's the DG of the British Irish Chamber. He wants to know, could Monsieur Barnier say his view on whether services can be addressed? in adequate time uh, within any deal at this stage. Um, so just services, if you may. Uh, uh, this question is very important because it is one, one sector, services, which is uh, huge important for the UK and for us, and uh, obviously for, uh, for Ireland, where uh, you will see a real difference between a deal and a no deal. Huh? So uh, we are working with the UK uh, in the global framework of the uh, trade agreement on goods and services. So if we succeed to reach a deal, there will be an important uh, part of the agreement dedicated to the services. Uh, I'm speaking about all the services except the financial services which, which, which are in a different, uh, different process, which is a, 
what we call the equivalences process for financial services, which is not in the negotiation, which is a unilateral process from the EU side. So I think that if we reach a deal, which is my goal, our goal, uh, a large part of the services will be covered by this agreement. Very good. Um, just a question here um, um, from um, uh, Shane, uh, Shane Cody, who's a member of our institute here. And he says, or he asks, uh, he says, in the um, event of no agreement, which I know we're working to, um, to, to, to make sure we do get agreement, but he says, in the event of no agreement or a minimal agreement, uh, what are the options for further or new negotiations in early 2021? And are there any procedural obstacles to further engagement at that stage? Uh, Michael, it's not exactly the same thing to speak about no agreement or no minimal agreement. I know this uh, uh, wording of the UK speaking about a low profile agreement. Uh, what the UK calls low profile is uh, nevertheless uh, zero tariff, zero quota access for uh, the UK products to the single market is not really what we, we call a low profile. Huh? Uh, remembering that we never propose for, for any country in the world at the very beginning of the negotiation, zero tariff and zero quota as we did for the UK. So it, is, it cannot be a low profile, but in any case, uh, even with a low profile agreement in trade, we will need and we will ask for a credible framework on the level playing field. Uh, if the, there is no agreement, uh, uh, everybody will see uh, very soon, in four, four, four months from now, what will happen. And once again, it will be a, a, a huge difference and many change. I, I spoke in my initial remark about what will happen in the first, on the 1st of January next year. Huge change, deal or no deal. Uh, if there is no deal, in addition to the controls, which will be uh, an obligation for any goods entering in single market, we will control these goods to protect the consumer, to protect the budget, to protect the, the companies and, and the businesses. But in addition of this uh, control, we will implement tariffs, uh, uh, custom tariffs and, and quota, which will be a huge, uh, huge difference. Uh, if there is a need, unfortunately, uh, we will leave uh, for our trade relation under the framework of the WTO, which uh, will be, uh, once again, a, a very important change and many, many uh, uh, distortions and many, many, many uh, uh, problems uh, and, and, uh, and frictions, frictions between us. Unfortunately, it will be the, the choice of the UK, not our choice. Uh, and the door of the EU will remain open in any case. Okay, uh, just a question here, maybe just going back on the fisheries issue, uh, if I may, again, without getting into um, uh, asking you to get into the detail of the negotiations, uh, if they are underway, from Kieran O'Driscoll from the European Movement here in Ireland. He wants to know, in terms of fisheries within the Brexit negotiations, what obstacles uh, could be removed that would allow for an agreement in this sensitive policy area. Again, I know you don't want to enter into detail, uh, but what steps can be taken um, uh, that would um, 
would in, uh, help uh, secure an agreement in this area? Uh, this is a, a very difficult issue. Uh, the, the, we, frankly speaking, we are nowhere for the fishery issue, uh, even if we have had uh, use, useful uh, clarification and, and discussion, but uh, uh, we are still in very two opposite positions. Uh, uh, I have already said that we are ready to move from our initial position, which is uh, no change if the UK move, but the UK doesn't want to move, and this is a problem. Uh, the, the, the key problem is that uh, uh, becoming an independent coastal code, obviously the UK will recover the full sovereignty on their waters. No, 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 no doubt and no question at this point. But it is another thing, another story, speaking about the fish uh, which are inside the waters. And uh, uh, looking and respecting the international regulations and uh, also uh, what is, must be done on this issue, we think that we have to speak about the quota share uh, to find a, a sustainable long-term and balanced agreement with the UK. Uh, we are not there. So this is the point. I don't want to, to enter into details, but uh, uh, let me just recall once again it is my mandate, and I just want to mention that the mandate is very clear. There will be no trade agreement between the UK and the EU without a credible framework on level playing field, what I called the um, fair play, the economic and trade fair play, and without a sustainable uh, agreement and balanced agreement on fishery. There will be no trade agreement between UK and EU without these two points sold before. Okay, so just uh, maybe just one final question, if I may, uh, Michel, uh, you're heading back uh, to London next week. Uh, are you going back to London? And I know you've, uh, you haven't been too optimistic uh, in your remarks, um, but are you, um, are you expecting um, uh, a breakthrough um, um, then? Or, or when, when do we need to see a breakthrough? Uh, and, and what would that breakthrough, how would we know that we've got a breakthrough um, uh, when the time comes? I mean, so time is running out. Uh, you're going back to London. I think there's one more negotiating session after that. So uh, are you hoping, um, uh, maybe against hope, uh, that there will be some movement on the UK side that you will see uh, next week? Uh, we need a breakthrough. We, we need to move. And uh, once again, if the UK wants a deal with us uh, and a fair agreement for this zero, zero, zero tariff, zero quota access to the British products to our market of 450 million consumers, uh, they will have to move. Uh, and it is their choice. It is their responsibility. Uh, we are ready to make fair and uh, constructive compromise, but not at the detriment of the EU and the uh, single market and the integrity and the values and the rights of the consumers, the workers, uh, the env environmental rights. So um, I will come back uh, as frequently as necessary to London. Uh, the UK delegation is ready to come back to Brussels. Uh, we will work uh, 
res with respect towards the UK, as usual, as always. We will be patient, calm. I, I will keep calm until the day, the last day of this negotiation, and respectful. Uh, but uh, we will not uh, change the main lines, and we are just asking for the UK to understand the key positions of the EU. And also, if I may repeat what I said, we just ask for a legal translation of the political commitments taken by Boris Johnson a few months ago in October in this document. Can take the time to read this document, which is not so long, 16 pages, which is a political declaration ratified supported, approved by the House of Commons, the same time that the treaty, uh, the withdrawal agreement. Uh, these documents is not a speech, it is a political document, and it is a commitment for the two sides, given the, the framework of the future negotiation. So, uh, once again, I am worried and uh, disappointed, but uh, I still think that the uh, really possible, uh, you just use the word optimism. Uh, you just you just use the word optimism. Uh, remember, Michael, what what was the answer of Jean Monnet, uh, one of the grandfathers of the EU, when he was asked, Mr. Monnet, are, are you optimism or pessimistic? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? And his answer was, uh, I'm never optimistic. I'm never pessimistic. I'm just determined. It yes, is exactly my, my feeling today. Thank you. Just There is actually one just final question here, and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, Michel from uh, Bruno uh, Waterfield from the, uh, the London Times, and I think it's a question yes. that I just want to address to you, and we'll, we'll finish on this particular one, I think. He says, I need to ask uh, Monsieur Barnier about fishing, his uh, contrary to truth comment, uh, also on state aid. He says, does Monsieur Barnier deny that the UK tabled room documents in round seven? Uh, I uh, never see new legal documents on fishing issue and level playing field in the UK in the last round. Okay, that's clear. Okay, well, look, on that basis, I think we're going to um, finish. Um, thank you indeed, and thank you to everyone who joined us uh, this afternoon for such a, a timely, indeed lively uh, discussion. Uh, thank you in particular to our friends in the European Commission representation office here in Dublin who are our co-hosts for this event. But thank you most of all to you, uh, Michelle, and, uh, and uh, we hope at some future date that you will find it possible when circumstances permit uh, to uh, come back to Ireland to see us in person. Uh, clearly the coming weeks are going to be critically important, critically important for Ireland, uh, critically challenging for the European Union and the UK and we wish you the very best in all your endeavours. If I could just say that uh, two weeks from today, as you mentioned yourself, I think, Michelle, uh, President uh, Dr Ursula von der Leyen will deliver her first State of the Union address and uh, following that speech, uh, the IIEA will co-host with uh, our friends in the European Commission Representation Office and the European Parliament Office in Dublin an expert discussion exploring uh, the key issues arising uh, in that context, and you can get more uh, details about that on our website. So with that, I want to adjourn, say thank you sincerely, uh, thank you for your insight, thank you for your candor, 
uh, thank you for just um, for uh, for representing the European Union in the way that you do in these challenging times. We wish you the very very best, and uh, we just um, um, would like to say, Gorvina um, Margot, thank you very much. Perhaps just if I may, uh, just one one sentence to thank you, Michael, and your team. I will be always available. Uh, I hope after uh, the, the, the good conclusion of this negotiation on the, on the deal, which is once again in the common interest, and you mentioned once again the very important speech that uh, Ursula von der Leyen will, will deliver in two weeks from now. This speech will be about the current crisis, but also on many ambitions and project, the Green Deal, for instance, uh, of the EU and the proposal of the commissions and about the future of Europe, which is much more important than the Brexit, if I may say. Uh, so uh, I remain available and obviously I will come back to Ireland and Northern Ireland uh, as frequently as possible in the future. Thank you very much. You'll be very welcome indeed. So thank you very much. With that, we will end and, um, and, and sign off. Thank you very much indeed. This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, the Institute of International and European Affairs. Join the discussion on IIEA.com and access our engaging videos, blogs and podcasts.